listening to the Citizens Podcast from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. We live in a culture that's really obsessed with wealth and billionaires. They've kind of become about part of the popular imagination of things. And then we do it out of part admiration, like how they get so much money, and part kind of like mad, like how's a billionaire have so much money and I don't have so much money? And now we're starting to ask, like, what's their role in government? What's their role in popular culture? Who are these people? And if we look here, this is the familiar names you'll probably see. This is currently the richest people on earth. And at the top, he's buying Twitter, is Elon Musk. He might get us to Mars. Who knows? Kind of tweets crazy things, does crazy things. But he's the richest man on earth at $219 billion. You got Jeff Bezos, founder of Amazon. The Bernard Arnault and family, which own some luxury brands like Louis Vuitton, Bill Gates and Microsoft, Warren Buffett, the prophet of Omaha, the Oracle of Omaha, Larry Page, Sergey Brin, Larry Elson, Steve Ballmer are all in the tech industry. And you've probably heard some of those names before. They bounce around in the news. They're kind of part of a modern American life. And I bring them up. Because modern scholars, in looking at King Solomon, and looking at King Solomon's wisdom, modern scholars have put King Solomon's liquid net worth, money he could spend, at over $2 trillion. That would be eight, nine, ten times that of the richest man currently living. And Elon Musk ranks as maybe the richest man ever currently living who's not named Solomon in liquid assets. It's a wild amount of money. And while David's kingdom was great, Solomon's kingdom was even greater. The borders were wider. The peace was greater. The prosperity didn't just stop with him, but went on to everyone. And the question we should be asking, why does this guy have $2 trillion? And how did it even happen? Well, just like David, who was called a man after God's own heart, Scripture says something wonderful about Solomon. Look at chapter 3, verse 3. It says this, And Solomon loved the Lord. Scripture doesn't actually say that about a lot of people. That God's word says you definitively loved God, the Hebrew God, Yahweh. Walking in the statutes of David, his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king who went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, For that was the great high place. And Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. See, Solomon loved God with his affections. Like you can only love God. It's emotion, it's affections, it's a commitment. But he also lived it out with its actions. You try to get a thousand bulls or a thousand goats up a mountain. It's going to be a day. You're going to have to have a squad and a team to get a thousand goats up this mountain. And then what's all right, team? Slaughter on. That's a lot of blood. He is really serious about his worship of Yahweh. This is not light work. And then God meets Solomon in a really unique way. Verse 5 says this, At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. Anybody see that movie Blank Check growing up? Where a kid gets a blank check and gets to do anything? This is a Disney Aladdin style moment that the king of the universe would point blank, say anything, man, name it. 
And of all the things he names, he doesn't ask for more wishes. But verse 7 says this, And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant in the midst of your people, whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude, give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern your great people? Solomon answers beautifully. He humbles himself and says, hey, man, I got big shoes to fill. This is a big kingdom. I'm a young guy. Lord, help me distinguish between Tov and Ra. He's set up as this new Adam between good and evil, Tov and Ra in Hebrew. But instead of picking the apple in the garden, he's going to come to God and say, God, I want your wisdom of how to live. I don't want to take the apple for myself. I want to rule your people rightly. Look how many people there are. Man, that Genesis 12 promise to Abraham came true. There truly are as many as the stars of the sky or sand of the seashore people. What am I to do? And God loves his answer and responds so heartily to him. Verse 10, and it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, because you've asked this, and have not asked for yourself for a long life or riches or life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, now I do according to your word. Behold, I will give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none shall arise like you after you. I give you also what you've not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all of your days. And if you will walk in my ways and keep my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. God gives him the response of dreams that I'm going to do all of these things. And God makes him the wisest man on earth, but he also makes him a global spectacle of health and wealth to all nations. He's so rich, he doesn't even have peers now. There's never been a political figure like him that people from all the nations wanted to come and listen to his wisdom. So why is he so wealthy and successful? Well, one, God made him so wise, but two, God wanted to show off. Just like God in judgment punished Pharaoh and Egypt on the way out and then conquered the promised land to show his glory and power, so now God is going to show his glory and goodness and power through Solomon through the greatness. He wants all the world to be jealous of this kind of God, a God who can make it rain literally for this man. And that's what God's doing, that no one can ignore that there's a God in Israel. And Solomon's wisdom starts blessing the nation. It starts blessing everyone. It gives them peace, peace like they've never known. When you read the Bible, there's war after war after war after war, and it just stops. It's the Pax Solomona. It's all happening. Chapter 4, verse 25 says this, And he had peace on all sides around him, and Judah and Israel lived in safety, from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine, under his fig tree, all the days of Solomon. That's a fancy way of saying they didn't have to go to war anymore. That a man could live his life and raise his family and do a good job and have enough for himself and his family. And they didn't have to suit up for more. They weren't leaving home. They were underneath their own vine. And in peace, we see this Solomon, 
He rules justly for everyone. It's not just good, good guidance at the top. He's even doing small cases and doing them well. See, these two women lived in a house. They had babies at the same time. One of the babies died. Then the women disputed which baby had died and which baby had lived. They bring it to Solomon, and in 325, Solomon settles it like this. And the king said, divide the living child in two, give half to one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son, no one wants to see their child cut in half. Oh, my Lord, give her the living child. By no means put him to death. And the other said, well, he'll be neither mine or yours. Divide him up. Then the king answered, well, give the living child to the first woman because the second one is crazy. That's a lot going on. Want the death of a child here. By no means put him to death. She is his mother. And all of Israel heard of his judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king because they had perceived the wisdom that God was in him to do justice. Imagine having a ruler, a true ruler, who is truly so wise that all the decisions are like bang, bang, bang. That all everything started to work. That all the promises started to come true. That the prosperity started raining down. That everyone wanted to get a piece of this Solomon guy. Verse 34 says this, And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. And this famously includes the Queen of Sheba. She comes all the way from modern-day Ethiopia, travels because she's heard that the wisest king of all time is happening. And she comes and she questions him and questions him and tests him to see, is it true? Is he truly the man? And she stays at his invitation. And she agrees. And they have this friendship that grows. She's so impressed that she leaves as a new worshiper of Yahweh, bringing the word of God back to Ethiopia and back to her kingdom. It blows everyone away. It's important to see the word of God has always been for all people. And the second way his wisdom bore fruit was this. There was a deep prosperity. Chapter 4, verse 20 through 26 says this, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand and the sea, and they ate and drank and were happy. And Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates, that's in Iraq, to the land of the Philistines, that's the seashore, to the border of Egypt, to the south. And they brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. So not only was Solomon rich, kind of everyone was doing well. He wasn't even keeping it all for him. It was a prosperity that was spreading out. And the last way is wisdom blessed. Was Solomon got to build the permanent house, the temple for God himself. And when Solomon finished this temple after seven years of labor, chapter 810 says this. This is what happened when they finished. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And that's important because that's what happens in Exodus 40. When they make that tabernacle and the glory of God actually comes, that God actually comes and dwells in, they can't even get in the place. It'd be like they finished, they put the ark down, and it blows up in a fireworks smoke show to where everyone is absolutely certain God is now dwelling with us in reality. 
It was a powerful moment for all of Israel. It was the longing of David's heart. People had longed for God to dwell in their city, dwell in their capital, and it finally was all happening. It was all happening. And what's he do? He offers a prayer. He offers a commitment. They make sacrifices. And then Solomon just throws the biggest party Israel has ever seen. Verse 65. So Solomon held a feast at that time with all Israel with him. All Israel, not some of Israel, not the military, not the Jerusalem people, but everybody, a nationwide party. All of Israel with him, a great assembly before the Lord God for seven days. That's quite a party. That's a wedding length party of these people saying, this is our God. We are the bride of this God. And on the eighth day, he sent the people away. He says, all right, we got to get back to work. This is crazy. And they blessed the king. They're like, this king is great. And went to their homes joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness the Lord had shown to David, his servant, and to his people, Israel. Church, this is a, a good reason that we should be the people of a good time. We party for the right reasons and we should have a blast because the people then partied because God was finally home with them. And they had a good king. Life was good. And I want to make a note here because King David wanted to build this temple. It was put in his heart, Lord, I want to build this temple. He was the greatest king till Solomon. And, Saul, and God had told David, David, you're a warrior. You shed too much blood. You don't also get to build the temple. And David could have quit right there. David could have said, man, whatever, I'm out. But he did the opposite. He went and did the hard work. He went and gathered all the supplies and the money to give to his son Solomon to succeed in building the temple. Look what it says in 1 Chronicles 29. It says, then the leaders of fathers' houses made their free will offerings. They gave because they wanted to. As did all the leaders of the tribes and the commanders of thousands and hundreds and officers over the king's work. And they gave for the service of the house of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, 100,000 talents of iron. And whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord in the care of Jael the Gershonite. And then the people rejoiced because they had given willingly. They had given willingly. For with a whole heart they would offered freely to the Lord. And David the king rejoiced greatly. Church, you'll see, and it's a model here, great things for God are often accomplished through willing, cheerful, sacrificial giving to a work that needs to be done, to a work that's beautiful and good that God is doing. It's the same thing, this willing, cheerful, sacrificial giving we see in the New Testament. It's 2 Corinthians 8. And that kind of giving is done when we see that God truly owns it all and we're just stewarding our stuff. That the deep down owner of everything, every dollar in our life is God's. And for us, we look to models like this so that we can grow in this matter of discipleship. Because finances are one of the greatest measure of our spiritual maturity. Why so? Well, Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 6. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, listen to me, church, there your heart will be also. 
where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Israel's heart was they wanted God to be with them. So it was willing, easy, sacrificial part probably wasn't easy. But there was a cheerfulness where they're celebrating, preparing for this work to be done. There's just no spiritually mature people who don't handle their finances in a spiritually mature way. Because your finances are too big of part of the pie of your life. They affect your work. They affect all your decision-making. That is a place, if you want to grow in maturity, to focus down on. And we give to missionaries because we believe in the work to be done to fulfill the Great Commission. That's why we give a big percentage of things away here at Citizens. We give to Citizens because we want to establish and believe that we need more churches to fulfill the Great Commission, grow our souls up, and pursue the glory of God together. We give to Mercy Works. Why? Because God is merciful. When giving's a part of your obedience, you get to celebrate all that God does through your gifts, through your prayers, through your hard work. And we see David's model is beautiful. And Solomon's model of loving God goes from a good one to a bad one. And I know that can be disappointing because it's like, man, every leader in this series ends up not doing so hot. Well, they're not Jesus. That's why we're looking for the true king. Instead of getting bummed out that a leader misses the mark or blows up his life or whatever else, we instead look to the same hope for us that when we miss the mark is Jesus. It's the same hope that Solomon has as the hope that you have. See, Solomon's explicitly told to obey in Deuteronomy 17, explicitly told to obey these kingly rules from Deuteronomy 17 of how the king of Israel should act. And he's told it three different times. First Kings 2, David charges his son, obey the statutes. First Kings 3, at the end of this dream of God where he gives him wisdom, God says, obey the statutes. After the temple, the glory of God fills it. They pray, they slaughter animals, they party. God appears to him in a dream in 1 Kings 9 and says, obey the statutes, Solomon, or it's all going to go away. The temple will fall and Israel will fall apart. And what does Deuteronomy 17 say? Look with me here. Verse 15 says this, You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. Verse 16, Only he must, three things. A, he must not acquire many horses for himself. Now, it's not because God hates husbandry for all the horse lovers out there. Looking at you, Kaylee. <laughs> it's not because God hates horses. It's because that was a sign of military power. It was like tanks. Don't gather up all the tanks. Or cause the people to return to Egypt to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you, never, you shall never return that way again. B, he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. C, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver or gold. Now Solomon, like every Israel king, is given these three big rules, plus he must actively read the scriptures and do them. That is the king's job in Israel, to be obsessed with the scriptures and implementing them in the life of Israel. And don't do these three things. 
And sadly, we find that Solomon, with all the peace and all the leisure time that peace might bring, we find him doing things that he shouldn't be doing. He should be giving his heart to the Lord, but instead, 1 Kings 9, verse 15 says this, the forced labor that King Solomon drafted to build the house of the Lord and his own house. See, Solomon had married Pharaoh's daughter, and then he started acting like Pharaoh. He shouldn't be making slaves of Israelites, but here he is in the name of the house of the Lord, but then in the name of the house of himself. It actually only takes seven years to build the house of the Lord, but his house is so grand it takes 13 years of slave labor. Solomon then, uh, verse 19, and all the store cities that Solomon had and the cities for his chariots and cities for his horsemen and whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem and Lebanon and in all the land of his domain. We see Jesus in the New Testament warns deeply against hoarding of this idea of build bigger barns and just accumulate stuff. The law learned, don't be like Egypt. But here we have Solomon being a lot like Egypt. He's gathering up horses, so many horses, he has to build cities for the guys to ride and care for the horses. And Solomon even builds a fleet of ships that help bring in this mega prosperity. And the prosperity becomes a snare itself. Verse 18 says this, The king also made a great ivory throne and overlaid it with the finest gold. The throne had six steps and the throne had a round top. On each side of the seat were armrests and two lions standing beside the armrests. And while 12 lions stood there, one on each step, on the six steps, the like of it was never made in any kingdom. It's one thing to have a throne because you're a king. It's another thing to have the greatest throne in the history of the world, more like a throne for God than a man. And this is what he did with his spare time and money that he didn't know how to spend. Verse 21, all of King Solomon's drinking vessels were gold. Sounds a little much. And all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. None were silver, because silver was not considered anything in the days of Solomon. Well, that's a problem. If it says don't have too much excessive wealth of gold and silver, that he has so much gold that the silver prices have plummeted. Verse 27, and the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. And Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt. He literally broke all the rules back to back to back. And we see this slow tragedy is just kind of unfolding. It's like watching a car wreck in slow motion as the glass starts to shatter and you see things are going to fall apart. And chapter 11 intentionally opens just like chapter 3. Remember what chapter 3 said? It said Solomon loved Yahweh. Let's look at chapter 11. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Not Yahweh. Along with the daughter of Pharaoh, he loved a Moabite, an Ammonite, an Edomite, a Sidonian, a Hittite women, all the people they were supposed to conquer. Verse 2, from the nations concerning that the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. That's Exodus 34. And Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. 
and his wives turned his heart away. Solomon once clung to Yahweh. That was the story. We have a great king because he loves our great God. What could we ask more of him? Now he clings not in love, but in lust to a thousand women. And to be clear, the Bible never endorses polygamy. It always ends poorly in scripture, including this story. And the Bible supports the Genesis ideal of one man, one woman marriages. And the Lord had told kings not to many marry wives, especially wives who don't worship their God. To have a marriage relationship with someone who doesn't worship the same God is probably not going to go very well. And just like the wealth and the Egyptian horses, we see Solomon has directly disobeyed God. And see, it tells us about our heart. You don't lose love in your heart for God. It just shifts objects. He once loved Yahweh, and now he just loves other stuff. Whether it's people or shallow things like wealth and boats and buildings. The reason God isn't first in our life is because other things have ascended to the throne of our heart. And that's a tough thing to consider. Because I hear a lot, man, I want to get back to college, I want to get back to high school, I want to get back to this really powerful time in my life. And I'm not saying it's for everyone in every case, but a great place to start is to say, what's on the throne of my heart? I still have love to give, but what do I now love more than God? And am I willing not to destroy that thing, but maybe reorder that thing? Because God wants us to have healthy relationships. God wants us to have healthy relationships to money and our work and all the things in our life. They just can't be on the throne. We'd be so foolish not to see how easily relationships, pleasure, money, and power could ascend the throne of our hearts too. If the wisest guy of all time was duped into all this or deliberately fell into it, so can we. And Solomon ends up the great temple builder for God, fully worshiping other gods himself, verse 5. For Solomon went after Asheroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milicom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not wholly follow the Lord as David, his father, had done. And then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Moloch, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the east mountain of Jerusalem. And so he did for all of his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifices to their gods. And God's not sleepy. He notices. He's not asleep at the wheel. Our God never sleeps and never slumbers. Verse 9, And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice, you've not kept my covenant and my statues at Deuteronomy 17, that I've commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you, tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom." but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and the sake of Jerusalem that I've chosen. And the Lord raised up an adversary 
against Solomon. God judges Solomon. He affirms this Davidic covenant. I'm still going to bring a one-day Savior King through you. That's going to happen. But you can kiss the peace and prosperity goodbye. All the things that were given from me, thus the Lord shall take away. And this is a big story. So I want to draw our attention real clearly to two things. First, I want you to take Solomon's advice. Solomon's the writer of Ecclesiastes. And I hope this book is written at the very end of his life because much of the book is very wise and wants to tell us soberly about life. And he says this in Ecclesiastes 2, talking about himself. So I became great. I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. All my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep it from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity, striving after the wind. There is nothing to be gained under the sun. That's Solomon's big conclusion after being the most famous man on earth and the wealthiest of all time. You, my friends, are not as wealthy as Solomon. Whatever we want to apply our money to, we will never get to the joys, pleasures, and excitement of Solomon. And we will always be empty eventually in the things of this life. And I want to be so clear. Following Jesus does not mean you'll be healthy and wealthy. But instead, Jesus promises something far better. In John 10.10, Jesus says this, that the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And church, this is the verse that changed my life. I know exactly where I was. I was in a Daytona Beach, Barnes & Noble, back when people still went to bookstores regularly. They had this cool thing that was like a coffee shop. It's like, oh, a coffee shop in a, in a store? This is nuts. I was drinking coffee. I read this verse, and it hit me like lightning that Justin... You're either going to trust that following Jesus is the fullest and best life possible, or you're going to keep chasing the world with a little Jesus sprinkled on top like a cupcake, and you're going to keep being miserable. And I think a lot of us have Jesus frosting on an otherwise worldly life, and eventually it tastes horrible. And I want to invite you to trust Jesus, who 1 Corinthians 1 says is the wisdom of God, who Isaiah 9 says is the Prince of Peace, who is, as Jesus says, the thing greater than Solomon, to be your life. That following Jesus wholeheartedly is more satisfying than anything this world has to offer you. Because that's the big lie. The big lie that everything is slipping you, every advertisement is slipping you, every worldly philosophy is slipping you, that you would be happy only if you did X or were Y or believed this. And I'm telling you, if Solomon didn't win that way, why would you think you will? Jesus' words have been true in my life, and I ask you to believe Jesus at his word. 
Because Jesus didn't have all the things of Solomon, yet he lived the fullest and happiest life of any human ever. Think about it. The guy who invented sex and marriage did not have sex and did not get married and lived a full, happy, satisfying life. The man who invented work and wealth lived like a very average Israelite life and didn't live in his home the back three years. Yet he is the king of the universe. And he says he'll satisfy you and give you life to the full. Believe God at his word and trust him with all your heart. The second thing, church, I want you to be aware of Demas. And Demas is a person we see in the New Testament. He's listed as a faithful companion to Paul in Colossians 4. And he's spoken in Colossians 4 as this guy who's on the team. He's a missionary of Paul. They're enduring hard things. They're doing all the things. But Demas in 2 Timothy 4.10 says this, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me, and gone to Thessalonica. If Solomon can be led astray by the world, if Demas can be led astray by the world, church, you can be led astray too. That shouldn't make us fearful all the time, but it should make us watchful of our life. That what in this world is taking your heart other than Jesus? Church, hang on to Jesus. Cling to the God who loves you. Don't cling to this world. You've been listening to the Citizens Church Podcast. Special thanks to Murphy DX, who recorded our theme music. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama, you can visit us on our website at citizensbhm.com or on the usual suspects, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.